Listen to the word. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. Have you ever been a victim of false advertising? Maybe you ordered something online and when it came in, it wasn't quite what you were expecting it to be. Maybe you ordered some food and when you got it, you were disappointed because it didn't look anything like it did in the pictures, like at McDonald's, namely. (laughs) Well, over the years, there's been a few people who have been outraged by false advertising and they've resorted to lawsuits. Here's a few. In 2016, a woman sued KFC for $20 million over a $20 Philip bucket. She was reported, reportedly disappointed by her half-full bucket of chicken when she got home when the advertisements showed an overflowing bucket of chicken. And she was quoted in saying, where's the chicken? When she found out that her uh, bucket was only half-full. Well, she wasn't awarded anything uh, from her lawsuit. But in 2015, the FTC sued Volkswagen for cheating emissions tests on its diesel cars in the U.S. for the previous seven years. They'd lied to consumers about the fuel mileage as well. Volkswagen had been fined billions of dollars, and eight of its executives were convicted of federal crimes in their part of the clean diesel scandal. And this last one is the Austrian drinks giant Red Bull agreed to a $13 million settlement with American consumers in a class action complaint that their alleged distinctive tasting drink was no more effective than a cup of coffee. Despite advertisement that promised increased performance and concentration, it was found that Red Bull contained no performance enhancing supplements, but only caffeine. So sadly, no Red Bull does not give you wings. In a way, everyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ is an advertisement for Christ and his gospel. Not that we are some peddlers of goods or trying to sell some product, but in the sense that the way Christians live their lives affects how the world perceives Jesus and the gospel they are to proclaim. Believers are to be a living testimony of the gospel that they have believed in. And our lives should be irrefutable proof that we've been saved and transformed by the power of Jesus' work. Now, I know what some may think. So what you're saying is that we don't need to speak the gospel. We just need to live it out, right? Do that silent witness thing where, you know, you uh, preach the gospel, but use your words if you have to kind of thing, right? Well, no, definitely not. Peter makes that clear in the next chapter, in chapter 3, where he tells us to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. So Peter was highly in favor of verbally proclaiming the gospel and sharing with others why we have the hope in a hopeless world. But the point he's making here is that the lives believers live, both privately and publicly, must not make the gospel they proclaim look foolish to unbelievers who are watching us. Our conduct must match our confession. We must practice what we preach. We can say one thing and do one thing and talk about how much we love God and how we 
follow Jesus and believe in him, yet when we live lives that look little to no different from the unbelievers around us, we bring unnecessary shame and reproach to the gospel. Now, of course, the gospel and Jesus to whom it testifies, it's going to be mocked and disregarded by the world no matter what we do. You see, it's foolishness to those who are lost and to those who have rejected God. So Peter is not saying then that we can keep the gospel from looking bad and being mocked by the world, but that our lives should not add fuel to that fire. Our conduct should not be the cause of the gospel looking foolish, but it should be such that demonstrates the life-transforming and eternal worth of making Jesus one's Lord. Yet sadly, there are so many who claim the name of Christ, yet they grossly misrepresent him. It's been said that some of us speak so loudly by what we do that no one can hear what we say. So then how do we do it? How do we live so that the gospel and indeed Jesus himself is made to look glorious and magnificent as he truly is? How do we live the gospel? Well, here in our passage, Peter gives us two keys to living the gospel. The first key is that believers are to keep from fulfilling their sinful desires. So the first way we live the gospel is by resisting sinful desires. Look at verse 11 again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against you. Peter's calling here is for believers to fight the good fight by resisting sinful desires that wage war against the soul of believers. And notice he does something important here. When addressing how believers represent Christ in the way they live, Peter doesn't begin with their outward acts of the hands and feet and the way they behave, but he focuses on the inward condition of their heart. He does not start with the outward acts, but with what is taking place on the inside. We too often start in the wrong place when thinking about how we are to live the gospel, how we represent Christ. We start with our actions and, and the things that people see, right? And, and the things that we do and say. And we often stop short of the heart. We fail to start where God does, on the inside. You see, what takes place on the inside takes precedent over what takes place on the outside. Because what's on the inside influences what happens on the outside. Battles are won and lost from within. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and the hands and feet do. So our focus is to be just as Peter's is on the inside and focus on our character and our integrity first. Peter calls for believers to abstain from sinful pleasures. And abstain here just means to hold oneself away from. It's the idea that believers are to separate ourselves from our sinful desires, to keep from fulfilling and giving in to those sinful desires. You see, the gospel is life-transforming because God has sent the Holy Spirit to live inside his people, to empower them to live lives of holiness and obedience to him. The Christian reality is that the old has passed away and the new has come. We have been made new in Christ. Yet, as 
most of us or all of us can attest to, we still struggle with temptation, do we not? Those sinful desires still crop up and still fight for our affection and for control. But why is that? Where is it that those sinful desires are coming from if we're new in Christ? Well, Scripture teaches us that they come from the part of us that has yet to be fully redeemed, the part of us that the Bible calls our flesh, our sinful humanity, and the sin nature that still clings to us and fights for control, fights for our affection, and wages war against our souls. But thankfully, we won't be like that forever. One day we'll be fully redeemed. Romans 8.23 expresses, We wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. But until that day, those sinful desires that come from within will continually fight for control and wage war on our souls. So that's where they come from. But what exactly are they? What are these passions of the flesh that Peter is talking about? What exactly are believers supposed to abstain from to keep themselves from giving into? These fleshly desires are the strong cravings of our sinful nature. And Paul helps us. He gives us a pretty clear list in Galatians 5, 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And that last part makes the list almost infinite, right? I mean, they're obvious and they're abundant, are they not? The desires of the sinful flesh. So, we know what the passions of the flesh are. We know where they come from, our sinful nature. And we know we are commanded to resist them, not to give in to these desires. But what's most essential is to know how we can battle these desires, how we can effectively fight these ungodly desires and these urges, and how do we abstain? How do we fight against them? And again, Paul helps us in Galatians 5. He continues and he says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. It's all about submitting to Christ. It's about letting the Spirit of God lead us. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 1, 13, where he calls believers to prepare their minds for action, being sober-minded to set our hope fully on Christ. So when believers fill their hearts and minds with the Word of God, and they seek His wisdom and guidance and, and trust in His Holy Spirit to give us victory over these desires, that's when we can overcome these desires. That's when we can successfully resist the attempts of our own passions and our own desires. We can resist those and live with integrity and live honorably. There's two great motivations that we find that Peter brings out here in verse 11 that help us to resist these sinful desires. And the first comes in the form of a reminder that this is not our home. This world is not our home. 
In verse 11, in the first part, Peter reminds God's people that they are aliens and strangers in this world. And this idea goes back to the previous verses where Peter develops the idea that Christians have been chosen by God and set apart for him to be his people. God has called sinners out of the darkness and brought them into his marvelous light to demonstrate his power, his great mercy and his grace and bring glory to his name. God has called sinners out of darkness and he has made them his people. The, the previous verses say that you were once not a people, but now you are a people. And, and God has made us his own and called us out and our home is not here. This is not where we are to be comfortable and, and focus on, but we are a special people who God has called out and made his own. Reminds us that we're not to view this fallen, broken, and sin-stained world as home, and that the sinful humanity is not something we should indulge in, and the wicked flesh not as something to feed. While most people are out chasing every bit of pleasure and gratification they can get a hold of, Believers should remember that they've been saved from that helpless and hopeless existence that only enslaves and ends in death and judgment. We've been saved to a greater, more glorious existence with God and his people. Believers, we're to remember our permanent position with God through Christ so that we can know that the pleasures of sin do not compare to the infinite delight of knowing and being known by loving and being loved by our creator God. That is where our home is. That is where our hope lies. So the second motivation to abstain from sinful desires is that they wage war against our souls. So not only is this not our home, but those sinful desires that wage war against our souls seek to destroy us. The enemy of our souls would love nothing more than to render us ineffective and immobile and keep us from moving forward in God's kingdom work and doing the work God has called us to. You see, we're eternally secure in Christ and nothing can separate us from the love of God. But our sinful desires fight to take control and to distract us away from what God wants us to do, from partnering with him in the gospel. In this battle between the new man and the old sinful flesh still wages war and clings to us. And Paul describes this battle as he laments in Romans 7. He says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So Paul expresses this idea that I'm sure all of us can, can feel in our hearts, that when we want to do God's will, we want to obey and we want to do the right thing, yet always that sinful flesh is right there. Always those desires come up and, and we want something more and we want something different. And, and they fight for control and fight for our affections, yet we want to do God's will, yet there is a different law at work in our bodies and fighting for control over us. So we can see that the battle we face is a very serious one. 
We're under constant assault by our desires that would draw us away from God's truth and deceive us into sin and cause us to bring shame upon the name of God and upon the gospel. Believers, it's for this reason that we should be on guard, prayerful, watchful, and ready to keep from giving in to those wicked desires. We must not forget that the battle starts on the inside, and we can't stop short of our hearts. We need to be honest about these struggles and confess those to God, to remember that we are in Christ as we study God's word and rely upon and have faith and trust in the grace God has given us through the work of his son. Then we will be able to live transformed lives out of a changed heart, abstaining from the passions of the flesh. So for us, there was a time when our lives were no different from the world around us. We were going at life with no hope. We were living life on our own, chasing after every desire that cropped up without the knowledge nor the ability to do otherwise. But praise be to God that he sent Christ to live for us, to die for us, and to rise again so that through trusting in him alone, in the work that he accomplished, we could be forgiven of sin and restored to a right relationship with God. Praise be to God that we are kept secure in, and held in his arms, that as we trust in Christ, our eternity and our souls are held secure in him. Praise to be to God that he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell us and to change us from the inside out and to give us understanding so that we can trust in him, that we can overcome these sinful desires as he applies the finished work of Christ to us. Believers, our sin struggle is real and it may continue for a time, but we have a work of God applied to us that pardons us from the penalty of sin and a work of God being done in us that convicts us of that sin and empowers us to resist those desires and to fight the fleeting pleasures of sin. We've been transformed from the inside out, been set right side up and called as God's people to follow his spirit, working out what he is working in us. That way we can resist sinful desires that come from the heart and live lives in accordance with God's will for his glory, rightly representing Christ to a world that desperately needs to know him. So in addition to keeping a close watch on our sinful desires, resisting those temptations, we must also keep a careful watch on how we live our lives before the watching world. We should be careful to walk with honor before the world. That brings us to point number two. Believers should live lives of godliness before a watching world. So Peter transitions here in verse 12. He goes from talking about the inward purity and walk before the Lord to our outward behavior in front of the world. He calls for believers to pursue godliness, striving to live holy lives, lives set apart from and unto God before the unbelieving and watching world. So look with me again at verse 12. Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So here we learn that in addition to being vocal witnesses for God, believers are also called to be visible witnesses 
for him. Their Christian walk is to be consistent with their Christian confession. And the reason why is simple. It's because the world is watching us. People often give those who are gifted in caring for others a hard time for never vocalizing the gospel. But the opposite argument could be made that those who are vocal witnesses for Christ yet do not live like it, it's neither is a viable option. It's not either or, it's both and. We are to be vocal and visible witnesses for Christ. We are not only to live out the gospel in what we do and in our godly character and in serving others and carrying out his work, but we are also to verbally proclaim the gospel, to share the hope that is inside of us. It's both and. He makes the point here that when people know that we are Christians, they're going to observe our conduct, and our conduct will affect the way they perceive the gospel. Therefore, the way believers live should be a reflection of the life-altering, sin-killing, self-denying power of the gospel. As representatives of Christ, we should represent him well by living well. So even if we go out and preach the gospel to every single person we meet, we make the gospel look foolish and show ourselves to be hypocrites if we do not live lives of integrity and excellence. And the opposite is true. When we live lives of integrity and godliness, we show the greatness of our God in sending his son to save us from our sins. We should live the kind of life that makes the gospel believable. We should live the kind of life that makes our evangelism believable. John MacArthur has said, in summary, that the key to evangelism is inner purity and outer fruitfulness. Two results come from living godly lives in front of a watching world. The first result is that by living honorably among the unbelievers, believers will show the believability of the gospel. We will show unbelievers the believability of the gospel. Continuing in verse 12, Peter says, So that when they speak evil, or when they speak of you as evildoers, we'll stop there. Notice, he doesn't say, if they speak of you as evildoers. He says, when they speak of you as evildoers, acknowledging the fact that the world will speak evil of believers. And if they spoke evil about Jesus, then why would they not then speak evil of his followers? This should remind us that the non-believing world is watching us. They're, they're watching us over every move we make, looking for every opportunity to throw accusations at us, to discredit us, to humiliate, shame, and embarrass us. And more so now than ever in our society, Christians are under a microscope. And around the world, people are watching Christians and how they live and how they represent the gospel that they proclaim. So they're going to accuse us no matter what we do. In verse 15 here in chapter 2, Peter continues talking about the idea of being accused, and he says that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter's point is not that we can live a life free of accusations, but that when we are falsely accused of wrongdoing, our honest conduct will be, would put to shame our accusers. We should live carefully 
keeping a close eye on what we do and say. The world may take every opportunity to discredit us and our message, but when we are accused, our consciences should be clear, knowing that we did not do or say what they said we did. I've heard it many times from unbelievers as they're observing a professing Christian and the way they're acting when they see something that's less than honest or something that's uncharacteristic of Christianity and they'll say, wait, isn't so-and-so supposed to be a Christian? I thought they go to church. I thought they follow Jesus. Why did they do that? Why did they say that? If they're supposed to be a Christian, I thought they're supposed to do this, this, and that. The unbelieving world is watching every move we make, and the way we represent the gospel has an effect on the way they see Jesus. When God's people are open to these kinds of accusations and do not live honorably in front of the world, it brings shame to the one that they represent, and it discredits the message they proclaim. Believers, we should live in such a way that the word of God may not be reviled on account of us. May it not be true that the word of God was mocked and reviled because of our own behavior, because of our failing to live the life of godliness in front of the watching world. So how well are you representing Christ in this fallen world? How do you act when you're around unbelievers? Do you tend to act and speak more like them to avoid feeling out of place and feeling a little awkward? Do you compromise your convictions when you're with certain friends? Well, what about on social media? Does the way you interact there represent Christ as it should? Or, or would you be embarrassed if someone were to look through the things you've said and done? Believers, we should always be extremely careful to live in such a way that if someone were to accuse us of something, they would be put to shame and silenced because there was no merit to their accusation. Now, I know that some of you hear this, and me included, and say, man, that's, that's tough. That's hard. Well, we'd be right. It's impossible, as a matter of fact, to live that kind of life on our own. See, we need the Spirit's help. We need to see our need of Him and acknowledge the fact that we should rely upon Him to do the necessary work in our hearts and lives so that we, may, may, that we may bring glory to God in both word and deed. We need to be praying for him to work in our lives, confessing the sin as he reveals it to us, and trusting in his power to enable us to live and to work out the work he is doing in us. We need to be devoted to his word and committed to his church so that we can be rebuked, corrected, instructed, and trained in godliness. Then, as we grow in Christ-likeness, all glory will go to God, and others will see our works and give him glory as well. That leads us to the second effect of living a life of godliness. It not only silences our accusers, but it shows unbelievers the believability of the gospel. The second effect of living a life of godliness before a watching world is to show unbelievers the believability of the gospel. Let's look again at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak of you as evildoers, get this, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
So believers conducting themselves honorably among believers is not only intended to silence their accusers, but it's ultimately to bring glory to God. It is to show the believability of the gospel, that the gospel is indeed worthy of consideration, that Jesus to whom the gospel points is to be treasured above any treasure. By living lives of integrity and honor, Christians show the world that God is most glorious for having saved them and transformed them, not because believers are anything special, but simply by his grace and his mercy. Let's look at this day of visitation that Peter talks about here in the end of verse 12. This day of visitation is a concept that's found throughout the Old and New Testaments. And visitation really just means what it sounds like. And it implies the visiting of God to man. And there's several times in the Old Testament where it's said that God visits man. And there's two primary reasons that come along with these visits for blessing and judgment. Isaiah 10.3 records God's visitation with the purpose to judge and punish. Yet at other times, he's visit, he visits with the purpose to rescue or to bless, both in the Israelites' Egyptian bondage and the Babylonian captivity. It is said that God visited them in order to rescue them and to bless them and free them from oppression. And God visits Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, to rescue her from her barrenness. So while there's many references in the Old Testament for God visiting for judgment and punishment, blessing and rescue, when we come to the New Testament, almost every reference to God's visiting is that with the purpose for redemption. Luke 168 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Luke chapter 7, 16, it says, referring to Christ, God has visited his people, and this obviously for redemption. Then in Luke 19, 44, when Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, weeping over those who have rejected him as Messiah, he talks about how judgment will come upon them because they didn't recognize the time of their visitation. What he's saying is that because they rejected God's visit of Redemption and salvation, they would be left to face him in judgment because they didn't recognize that God had come to visit them for salvation. They would be left to face God in judgment. So what does this mean in the context of our passage? When we live honorably in front of the unbelieving world, and when God moves to save a sinner, that sinner will recognize the wonderful testimony that believers lived out in front of him and praise God for it. John MacArthur puts it this way. What he is saying is simply this, that because of the ongoing observation of the character and quality of a Christian's life, an unbeliever will glorify God in the day when God visits him to save him. In other words, at the time when the marvelous grace of God begins to move on the heart of an unbeliever, he'll respond with saving faith and glorify God because he has remembered the testimony of believers that he saw. Do you have the kind of testimony that would have this kind of effect? Are you living in such a way that would cause someone to praise God for the way you lived out the gospel in front of them? Believers, this is our challenge this morning to 
keep from fulfilling our sinful desires, to resist them by trusting in God's spirit and filling our minds with God's word and trusting in him to give us the power to overcome our sinful desires and then to live lives of godliness before a watching world, being careful with how we act and what we say so that we won't be the cause of the gospel being mocked, so that the gospel will not be mocked on account of us. That is our challenge, to live the gospel, to live it out. In closing, I'd like to look at the fact that God is still visiting men today. He's not changed. Even now, God is visiting people for salvation. You see, God visits man in the person of Jesus Christ. He sent his only son to live the perfect life to die on the cross, to take on God's wrath in the place of sinners, and that he died in our place. Yet God raised him from the dead, giving him victory over sin and death, and now he's seated at the right hand of God forevermore, and he's made a way for sinners to be forgiven of their sin and made right to be restored to a right relationship with God. God is still visiting people today. And so if you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I I plead with you, don't miss this day of visitation. For God has come and he's, he's called you to turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And as a warning, just as the Israelites, if we reject this day of visitation, we will be left only to face him in judgment. So if you have not, I pray that today would be the day that you would bow the knee to King Jesus, turning away from your sin and placing your trust fully in Christ alone for salvation. Let's pray.